James Carville once explained politics in a nutshell by proclaiming that it's the economy, stupid. In our previous episode, we examined how France was primed for a revolution. Its government was bloated and far too slow to react to the changing headwinds around them. While England had invested its power within a national bank, the government of Louis XVI borrowed one-fourth of its expenditures and spent half of all government revenue paying off interest on prior debt. While other administrations could have counted on God's support to get them through this rough patch, the French populace had divined that any supernatural forces out there wouldn't intervene on the behalf of the Bourbons. The concepts of liberty, equality, and fraternity had replaced tradition as the buzzwords filtering through the salons of France. The king attempted to jump on board, but the concept of equality doesn't quite vibe right when a peasant stands side by side with a king. Soon rumors of food shortages would burn the entire system down to the studs before anger would give way to hope hope to build a system that was fairer and far more sustainable than what they had torn down. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the second in a series of five regarding the French Revolution. Episode 2, The Storming of the Bastille. As it often does, economic drama paved the way for political drama. Louis XVI became king in 1774, one year before the onset of the American Revolution, which bankrupted his kingdom. He was 20 years old, far more experienced in life than his father or his great-grandfather, who had been a mere four years old when he took up the mantle of the Sun King. Despite his advanced age, however, he was never up to the challenge of stabilizing the monarchy. His first mistake was to buckle under pressure and restore the French Parliament to its full power. His father, Louis XV, had an extremely rocky relationship with the Parliament of France. One of the main points of contention between the king and the legislature was the issue of financial control. He had inherited a kingdom that was deeply in debt, devoid of international allies. Rather than diligently fixing the system, Louis the Beloved sought to increase his own power and control over the financial resources of the state. But the power of the purse had traditionally been the responsibility of the legislative branch. Louis had argued for an increase in taxes, but the first and second estates, made up of nobles and clergy members, joined together to vote down any and all attempts to hold them accountable for paying their fair share. Soon, the king found out that it is quite hard to convince those that have power to artificially limit their own wealth as the parliament successfully hid behind arguments 
that such maneuvers would ultimately hurt the economy and subsequently the people of France. To resolve these disagreements, Louis XV employed a number of clever tactics, including bypassing the parliament altogether by resorting to extra-legal means of financing his government, such as selling government offices and titles, a favored move of his grandfather, the Sun King. He also sought to undermine the power of the parliament by creating a parallel system of government administration, bypassing the traditional channels of power that were controlled by Parliament. The crisis came to a head, and Louis XV ultimately decided to devalue the power of the Congress because it had become clear that the institution was becoming powerful enough to challenge the king's authority. With it becoming abundantly clear for all to see that the members of the institution were far more interested in protecting their own personal interests rather than those of the kingdom as a whole. Thus, in 1771, he issued a royal edict that stripped the parliament of much of its power, effectively ending its role as a check on the king's power. The move was widely critiqued within the salons of France. Louis XVI and his advisors understood that discontent was rampant. Recognizing the need to address the ongoing financial crisis as well as a need to address the growing frustration among the French people, the king restored the rights of parliament, promising to grant it a greater role in decision-making. The hope was that it would be seen as a way to increase transparency and accountability of the government. It also appeared as though the king took the notions of enlightened scholars of France seriously in giving the people a greater voice in the political process. In this way, he was intelligently co-opting the ideas that would make up the revolution against his throne by demonstrating his commitment to reform and modernization. There were detractors within the king's cabinet of advisors but I told you so tends to fall on deaf ears when you are facing the falling blade of the guillotine. To his credit, a large portion of this episode will describe the king attempting to do the right thing, but ultimately failing miserably in executing his vision. Louis truly wanted to improve France and live up to his name. He employed capable finance ministers who worked hard to institute fundamental reforms, which were absolutely necessary. This included simplifying the tax code while eliminating local tariffs, which had been stifling trade. These economists were at the forefront of economic thought, but had arrived too soon for their own good as the French commoners didn't trust the newly described invisible hand of the so-called free market. Their fear was warranted as they posited that wealthy speculators would just buy up the grain supply, leaving the poor to suffer starvation until the price had hit a point that justified triggering a sell-off. The textbook Western Civilization, The Continuing Experiment, points out that the French trying to implement such reforms in a time of grain shortage almost guaranteed their failure. 
It has been said that if you want to be incrementally better, be competitive. If you want to be exponentially better, be cooperative. J. Richard Hackman spent 40 years researching organizational behavior in order to identify why some teams function better than others. The Harvard Business Review contributes to his findings by stating that what matters most to collaboration is not the personalities, attitudes, or behavioral styles of team members. Instead, what teams need to thrive are certain enabling conditions. Harvard found that three of Hackman's conditions, a compelling direction, a strong structure, and a supportive context continue to be particularly critical to team success. In fact, today those three requirements demand more attention than ever. But we've also seen that modern teams are vulnerable to two corrosive problems, us versus them thinking, and incomplete information. Overcoming those pitfalls requires a fourth critical condition, shared mindset. Pre-revolutionary France suffered from both corrosive problems while exhibiting none of the enabling conditions needed for successful cooperation. Trust was completely lacking, as historian Ian Davidson reminds us that the king and his predecessors had, over many decades, repeatedly adopted policies which alienated all those who might have helped him solve his problems, including, crucially, both the nobility and the bourgeoisie. The enabling conditions of the time reinforced a toxic us-versus-them mindset. Part of this came down to the organizations of the Estats General, the newly restored French Parliament. The first Estats General was convened in 1302. It consisted of representatives from what was known as the Three Estates, or social classes of French society. The first estate, the clergy, the second estate, the nobility, and the third estate, the commoners, including the bourgeoisie and the peasants. Throughout the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, the parliament was called into legislative session on a sporadic basis to address various political and financial issues facing France. The sporadic nature of its meetings, which only occurred when the king called for it, significantly limited its influence over the day-to-day -day governance of the country. The imbalance of power between the two branches of government was on display for all to be seen. The third estate was by far the largest of the three, representing 98% of the population of France. The clergy were the smallest of the estates. Only 120,000 members existed at the time preceding the French Revolution. 139 of them held the title of bishop and lived an enriched life with the equivalent wealth of kings ruling over their own fiefdoms, while 35,000 were mere parish priests who were oftentimes reduced to similar levels of poverty as faced by their parishioners. The second estate of nobles wasn't far larger. Proportionately, it is believed that they represented between 0.4 and 1.5% of the population. Critically, it was their aristocratic titles that placed them in this estate and not their wealth, 
as many of the nobles were often quite pinched economically. To this group, pride and status meant everything. Despite being far outnumbered and in many cases outwealthed by members of the Third Estate, the clergy and nobles maintained control over the system by enforcing a strict one estate, one vote policy. Thus, an estate would internally debate the legislation and then conduct a party-only vote to determine how their singular vote would be cast. This meant that the typical outcome for all legislation was a 2-1 decision in favor of the clergy and nobility. That was nearly always the case when the issue at hand involved potential reform to a status quo that was clearly working for elites, but failing spectacularly for the rest of France. On August 2nd, 1788, Louis XVI set in motion his downfall by calling forth the Estates General in a desperate hope that would rescue him from his financial predicament. It was a bold move, considering that the Parliament had not met during the previous 175 years that encompassed the rule of the Sun King and the Beloved. Beginning with a clean slate can be refreshing, but occasionally, it's nice to have muscle memory kick in to bypass the standard political stalemate. This time around, the King of France would ask Parliament to dramatically change the nation's system of taxation. It was a significantly tougher task than they were prepared for. After all, the last time the Parliament met was for the expressed purpose of singing Happy Birthday to Louis XIII on his coming-of-age day in 1614. Politics is the art of compromise, but it isn't always clean and easy. In fact, Otto von Bismarck remarked that if you like laws and sausages, you should never watch either one being made. The democratic process can be inherently tricky, something that Robert Kennedy Jr. alluded to with the thought that democracy is messy and it's hard. It's never easy. The Estates General knew that the king was in a financial pinch and that he wouldn't have convened parliament if he had any other way out of it. Thus, they knew that they held all of the leverage. Normally, the crown could count on its allies of the clergy and nobility. But in this instance, the king was asking to significantly raise taxes on both groups. Only a democratic solution infused with enlightenment ideas would do. But as Winston Churchill said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. The convening of the session began well for the king, as confidence was high that a deal could be reached. 
the cost of which was the establishment of constitutional limits upon the king's authority. The legislators wisely demanded that the Constitution must come before introducing any solution to the financial crisis. After all, failure to secure the rights of Parliament would mean that the king could summarily dismiss them for another 175 years, the political equivalent of dining and dashing. From the onset of the discussion, however, individual issues and personalities threatened to sidetrack the progress. Gabriel Requetti, the Comte of Maribot, had been rejected by the nobility for a personal history that was filled with adventure, debauchery, and scandal. Among the Cliff Notes version of his life, he dueled, sued his wife's family, committed incest with his sister, and broke out of one of the many prisons that he was sent to by his father for failure to pay his bills. The second estate deemed him unfit to serve, so he flipped political parties and joined the third estate, becoming a popularist orator proclaiming the rights of the people. Mirabeau attempted to elevate the gap between the rich and poor to the central issue of the day, rather than the urgent need to solve France's finances. He was aided by a 1789 pamphlet by Abbey Sees, who asked and answered three questions. First, what is the third estate? Everything was the answer he proposed. Second, what has it been until now in the political order? Nothing was the answer. Third, what does it ask? To be something. The gap between the well-off, at least politically, and the rest was growing exponentially. A population increase of 35% had propelled France to the status of the most populous country in Western Europe. As is often the case, a population increase didn't result in economic growth, and real income, which is wages pegged for inflation, declined. David Ricardo, a leading economist whose work was used to justify socialism, came up with a theory that he referred to as the Iron Law of Wages. It states that the real wage rate tends to converge towards the minimum level required for the survival of the working class, regardless of the level of economic growth or technological progress. In other words, no matter what happened around them, the working poor would always be poor. In the context of the French Revolution, Ricardo's iron law of wages can be seen as reflecting the widespread poverty and economic hardship experienced by the French working class. The king wasn't the only one suffering from France's financial troubles. The burden of taxes and other economic difficulties fell heavily on the working class and the poor. Ricardo's iron law of wages can be seen as reflecting the economic realities and the sense of injustice that motivated the French Revolution, as well as the challenges faced by the revolution in attempting to bring about lasting change. 
the opening ceremony of Parliament did little to soothe their passionate desire for change as the third estate was made to enter the chamber last, a full three hours after the clergy. From the outset of the proceedings, they seemed to be reduced in stature to that of an afterthought. Davidson reveals that the clergy wore cloth of gold, while the nobles dressed in red or violet capes. The third estate were forced to wear black, as though they were attending their own funeral. They were also the only estate that didn't have a designated seating area, forcing them to scramble and fight for seats beneath the watchful gaze of their already seated political opponents who looked upon them with disdain. The first session lasted for three hours and consisted only of a short conventional speech by the king, followed by a detailed accounting of the state's public finances. The speech was so long and presumably boring that the finance minister's voice gave out midway through. After the speech mercifully ended, the next step in the legal proceedings was for the estates to symbolically identify their elected officials. But the third estate flexed its political muscle and refused to proceed until it was agreed that the three estates would cease to meet and vote independently of each other. The clergy and nobles steadfastly refused, as they would be outnumbered by the third estate, 600 to 200. The deadlock persisted for five weeks. Leadership is key to resolving impasses like this, but the king dithered, allowing the third estate to seize the initiative in order to be the authors of their own story. On June 17th, they decided to ignore the clergy and nobles outright and arrogantly reasoned that since they represented 98% of the French population, they had the right to declare themselves as the National Assembly of France. Despite the name change, little else was altered. The third estate merely continued talking while simultaneously ignoring the objections of the other estates. Its next move put everyone on notice that they were a political force to be reckoned with, the newly minted National Assembly claimed sovereign authority to control tax policy. Davidson puts it succinctly that they were taking the responsibility for the solvency of the state away from the king. The maneuver swayed the first estate, which voted by a narrow 12-person margin to participate within the new rules of the new assembly. The nobles and the king, however, continued to resist the demands of the third estate. Trapped between a rock, in this instance the queen's instance that her husband ought to crush the rebels, and a hard place, his advisors warning him that cooperation with the estate would only embolden them. The king hesitated, ensuring that he would be crushed. His lone action was to lock the doors of the meeting hall, but that only resulted in the assembly seizing control of a nearby indoor tennis court. 
There, they administered what is known as the Tennis Court Oath, a binding agreement to continue to meet until a satisfactory constitution had been hammered out. Because you have to be in the room where it happens, the king rushed the remainder of the clergy into the proceedings and utilized the last of his political capital to bully the nobility into joining the assembly in order to steer the final document towards a beneficial outcome for himself. The king's behavior suggested that he viewed the assembly as legitimate, but he was never prepared to accept its authority. He ended his first address to those serving court with words of authority stating clearly, I order you gentlemen to disperse immediately and to present yourselves tomorrow morning in the halls allocated to your separate orders, there to resume your sessions. Historian Jules Michelet informs us that the nobility and clergy followed the king as he walked out. But the commons remained sitting, calm, and in silence. The master of ceremonies returned and said in a low voice to the president of the session, Sir, did you not hear the orders of the king? The president, Bailey, replied, it seems to me that the nation assembled cannot take orders. This was a direct challenge to the authority of the king. But in order to ensure that everyone knew it, Mirabeau, the former noble-turned-populist, poured gasoline on the fire by retorting that, We are here by the wishes of the nation. Only physical force can make us leave. Davidson identifies this as the moment where the Third Estate won the first phase of the revolution. He writes that the Third Estate had won not by firing guns, not with bloodthirsty crowds, but with ordinary commoners sitting in their places silently and refusing to be intimidated, just sitting there, saying what they wanted, and then going on sitting there. When the crisis came, the absolute monarchy of Louis XVI simply fell over like a dead tree. As historian Francois Ferret claims, the ancient regime was dead before it was knocked over. At this point in the story, the king momentarily moves into the background of the story. In fact, he was so effective at disappearing that the National Assembly began to act as though the king had completely surrendered. On July 9th, it formed a coalition to draft a constitution. Two days into the process, however, it was determined that they had first needed to write a Declaration of the Rights of Men. The document would not be formally adopted until August 26, 1789. It was primarily written by the Marquis de Lafayette, the French hero of the American Revolution. 
It borrowed heavily from the philosophical works of Rousseau and Montesquieu. The preamble reads that the representatives of the French people organized as a national assembly believing that the ignorance, neglect, or contempt of the rights of man are the sole cause of public calamities and the corruption of governments have determined to set forth in a solemn declaration the natural, inalienable, and sacred rights of men. It then proceeds to identify the inalienable existence of the rights of liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression, as well as asserting that the government derives its power from the consent of the governed. That last part was a bit problematic for Louis, as he had certainly lost the consent of his people. Two major factors were dragging his popularity to historic lows, the first of which was his wife Marie Antoinette. The queen was born in Vienna, Austria, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Francis I and Empress Maria Theresa of the Habsburg dynasty. The marriage was sealed in 1770 when she was just 14 years old in an attempt to end decades of conflict that had stretched back to the days of the Sun King. It was believed that their marriage would establish a new era of peace and prosperity an era that they certainly imagined was ruled over by a French king. Marie's transition to life in Paris was anything but smooth, and she struggled to adapt to her new life in a court that was highly ritualized. She eventually managed to woo the court with her beauty, grace, and wit through lavish parties of great expense. Her extravagant spending may have won over the ladies of the second estate, but they made her deeply unpopular among the French people that she ruled over. At a time when many were struggling to make ends meet, the queen's frivolous spending habits seemed vulgar and insensitive allowing others to paint the narrative that she lived in a world of luxury and excess, while ordinary people were suffering from extreme poverty and hunger. And when I say extravagant, I mean it. She became the personal patron of Elizabeth Vigi La Buon, who was paid to create more than 600 portraits of French figures. She invested more than 2 million francs into renovations of just one of her numerous vacation homes. But the part that really sticks out was her wardrobe. She reportedly bought 300 new gowns a year, making her positively dressed for excess. The New Yorker talks about her constant need for a makeover as a role that she took on in order to impress her husband who had trouble conceiving a child with her. I won't go into great detail here, but the king's explanation for how a baby was produced would have received a failing grade in health class. Although the two prior queens had dressed and behaved as though they were members of a convent, Marie took on the personality of one of Louis's father's mistresses. It was a last-ditched effort to draw the attention of her husband, 
as a baby was the entrance fee needed to secure her lifetime appointment as queen. She sent one portrait of herself in an embroidered gown encrusted with sapphires and a towering ziggurat of powdered hair to her mother in Austria, who was left aghast, remarking aloud that this was not the portrait of a queen of France, but that of an actress, a word that at the time remained synonymous with prostitute. She had a clothing allowance of 3.6 million, but consistently spent over her budget and racked up debts for her broke husband to settle. Importantly, her allowance came not from her husband, but the coffers of the French estate. In other words, the taxes of the hardworking members of the third estate. She didn't seem to understand their indignation at her wasteful spending, as the public was allowed to view the queen's wardrobe. The queen was attacked from all sides, with some viewing her as a foreign agent sent to sow ruin from within, while others blamed her for reported infidelity and her inability to produce an heir. Although they didn't speculate that she was a witch, they still blamed her for the natural disasters that were limiting harvests. She became a frequent target of salacious propaganda, including a disturbing amount of pornographic material designed specifically to insult her. Commoners referred to her as Madame Deficit when she wasn't around, while others alluded to La Ochini, which was a playful pun on the word bitch. Less creative was the phrase that was thrown about the most, the Austrian whore. In order to escape this disdain, she built a small fake village upon the grounds of Versailles, complete with a dairy, a mill, a farm, and a guardhouse, all decorated in rustic pastoral style, where her and her ladies-in-waiting could escape the formalities of court life in order to enjoy a more simple, natural existence. The cost for such a retreat? A mere two to five million livres. All of this hate towards Marie Antoinette pains me, as she, like myself, owned a pug. Her most beloved pet was a black pug named Mops, who sat like a good boy for a number of expensive portrait sessions. It is partly for this reason that I will be sure to redeem her regarding the fact that is most often attributed to the queen, that of the phrase, let them eat cake. First, let's clear up a major misconception that my students have when they hear this quote. She isn't talking about the delicious cake that you have on your birthday. Cake was the burnt part of the bread that remained crusted onto the sides of the pan when you forgot to spray it ahead of time. The quote is typically presented as though the queen uttered a callous response to the suffering of the French people, who were struggling to afford bread during a time of famine. It is frequently cited as the proof of her cruelty and detachment from the plight of the French people. But the phrase predates the queen's arrival in the French court. 
Rousseau was the first to have written the words, having done so in 1766. In one of his works, he describes an encounter with a great princess, who upon learning that the peasants had no bread, responded by saying, let them eat brioche. Historians are also quick to point out that the quote is quite inconsistent with Marie Antoinette's known personality and behavior. While the queen was known for her extravagance and love of luxury, she was also noted for her compassion and charity towards the poor, despite all of the insulting nicknames that they had come up with for her. She was involved in a number of charitable organizations and regularly gave money to those in need. Living within the walls of the Sun King's spectacular Palace of Versailles, Marie Antoinette spent her entire life within a self-governing architectural island which shuts out politics, reality, poverty, and society. When given the chance, Marie Antoinette had proven that she was able to do the right thing. Remember the diamond necklace affair from our prior episode? That messy affair involved a piece of jewelry that was so extraordinarily expensive that it had threatened to bankrupt the country once before. The jewelers attempted to recoup their investment by pawning it off to King Louis. But it was the queen who ultimately said no, stating bluntly that France has more need of 74 ships than of necklaces. Of course, that phrase doesn't roll off the tongue quite as nicely as let them eat cake. Still, it became well known that the necklace was offered to the queen. Comtesse de la Motte had begun a long con in order to work her way into court via the role of mistress to the Cardinal of Rohan. Through intricate forged letters, she convinced the cardinal that the queen desperately wanted the diamond necklace, but was too afraid of asking the king to pay for it because of the dire economic system facing the country. So the cardinal purchased it in secret and then had a late-night rendezvous with a prostitute whom he was led to believe was the queen. With the necklace in hand, Comatesse began to strip it down for parts and launder the exquisite diamonds to London. When the cardinal failed to make the final purchase, the jewelers contacted the queen directly in order to settle the debt. Although she was able to arrest the unwitting cardinal and the criminal Comatesse, Marie was double the victim. First, from embezzlement due to identity theft and secondly, the permanent damage done to her reputation with the French commoners, which served as the final nail in her coffin. Thus, King Louis was hamstrung by the public's distrust of his wife. He was also stung by horrifically bad luck at precisely the wrong time. The price of food, specifically the French staple of bread, began to rise exponentially in the background of our story. Bread made up between 50 to 80% of a working family's budget and hit an all-time high on July 14th. In the foreground of the story was a measuring contest between the king and the newly self-appointed National Assembly of France. 
Unfortunately, historians have no indication of what the king was thinking, or even if he was thinking at all. On June 26, he called up six royal regiments. It was an extreme show of force, considering that there were no outside enemy threats to the city. Rather than explaining himself, he escalated the situation further on July 1st by calling up 10 more battalions of foreign troops that were paid directly by the crown. When objections emerged from the assembly, the king merely dismissed them by sarcastically claiming that the troop surge was designed to protect the parliament's critically important business. Rather than intimidating the lawmakers, the sudden appearance of outside forces put the guard on guard. Jealousy appears to have won the day, and the local military force, the Garde Francois, began to fraternize with the protesting crowds that they had been dispatched to control. The king imprisoned ten of the guards in order to send a message, but they were subsequently freed by an unruly group of 4,000 Parisians that forced their way into the prison to free them. It was a dry run for the most memorable event of the first phase of the revolution, the storming of the Bastille. The immediate cause of the outbreak of violence at the Bastille was the firing of the king's reform-minded finance minister Jacques Necker. His abrupt removal was a sign that the hardliners within the court were beginning to win over the king's ear. The dismissal caused widespread anger and anxiety among the French people, who had grown to see him as a sympathetic figure and as a voice of reason in the government. Spontaneous demonstrations immediately began in Paris, shifting the revolution for the first time from Versailles to the capital. The protest began with several hundred people gathering outside the Hotel des Invalides, a military hospital that housed a large cache of weapons and ammunition. But the mob was temporarily halted by promises of a bureaucratic solution from the recently appointed delegates of the Third Estate. The lawmaker's proposal was to set up an insurrection committee. It would form a militia, stylized with socialist flares, including the fact that it would be made up of 800 men from each of the 60 Paris districts in order to maintain order in the city. They even announced plans to arm the 48,000-man militia with 12,000 rifles. But the would-be insurrectionists weren't prepared to wait for the commission's orders to go out. The mob grew in confidence after members of the Guards Francois joined with the crowd in order to charge less invalids, which was known to contain at least 3,000 rifles. With their confidence rising, they approached the Bastille, a symbolic representation of the king's power. Sadly, today there are no direct remains of the building that was the Bastille. Individuals seeking to visit the historical site have to traverse the city in order to find hidden remnants of the building, 
such as an outline of the outer bounds of the original walls along the Rue Saint-Antoine, or an excavated base of the tower that has been placed in the square Henry Gali. Today, Parisians literally walk on the stones of history as large portions of the Bastille's foundations were repurposed as roads and bridges throughout the city. But in 1789, the Bastille towered over the city in the same way that the Tower of London commanded the attention of all those enjoying the skyline in England's capital. It was built in the 14th century as a defense against foreign invaders. It was a massive structure with eight towers that were more than 100 feet high. The walls were 10 feet thick and surrounded by a moat that was more than 80 feet wide. At its heyday, it was heavily armed with more than 80 cannons. But at the time of our story, the great fortress had become known as a repressive prison filled with just seven political prisoners, 30 Swiss guards, and 80 wounded veterans. Its impressive arsenal had been reduced to just one cannon. Rather than a fortress, the Bastille had come to symbolize the oppressive and tyrannical nature of the monarchy. Many French people saw the prison as a symbol of the government's willingness to use force to maintain its power and suppress dissent. It was a source of fear and anxiety for many people who could be arrested and imprisoned at any moment without the safety net of an assured trial to prove their innocence. But most importantly, the Bastille held a lot of guns. The protesters were armed with their 3,000 stolen rifles, muskets, pikes, and a large number of kitchen knives that had been hastily taken from their homes on the protesters' way out of the house. As the crowd grew in size, tension began to rise. The governor of the Bastille, Bernard René Delaunay, refused to surrender the fortress, instead ordering his soldiers to fire upon the crowd from their safe position atop walls protected by a medieval moat. Dozens of protesters died in the exchange, but the show of force only served to inflame the anger of the crowd, which began a frontal assault. Launay called for order and surrendered to the crowd, which had promised him that his life would be spared. But as soon as he was out of sight, he was murdered in cold blood, shot on the steps of the town hall. His was the first of many severed heads that the revolution set upon a pike to be paraded around the city. But everyone, even a violent mob, wants to be considered the good guys. So the would-be revolutionaries began to circulate a false narrative that Linnae was a part of a government conspiracy to starve the people of Paris. It was a story that was swallowed hook, line, and sinker by a people that had already been preconditioned to believe that Marie Antoinette was satisfied with feeding the poor the inedible burnt cake edges from her extravagant parties. 
Despite being heavily armed, the valiant defenders of the Bastille were no match for the overwhelming numbers of the violent horde assembled against them. The protesters eventually breached the walls and stormed the fortress, engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the soldiers that remained trapped inside. Historian Mark Steele writes that the key moment in the assault came when one man, studying the angles of the drawbridge, decided he could get to the chains that held it in place by climbing on them from the roof of a nearby perfume shop. He succeeded, and using a variety of tools, cut through the chains. The one flaw in his genius was that as the drawbridge collapsed, it fell on a fellow protester and killed him. Nonetheless, the rest could now get into the outer courtyard. To get past the second moat, a clerk from a pawn shop ran to a carpenter's shop to fetch some planks. One of the eleven that he grabbed was long enough to enable a crossing. At the end of the day, six defenders of the Bastille and 94 protesters had lost their lives. As the city burned, the king once again dithered and then faltered completely. The attack on the Bastille was a direct attack upon the king's property. It followed the assaults on his authority through the formation of the National Assembly and the preamble of the Declaration of Rights of Man. Charles Swindoll tells us that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. But Louis's reaction was lacking. Steele informs us that the king in his diary for July 13th and again on the 14th wrote just one word, rien, which translates to nothing. On July 15th, he ignored the advice of his wife to retreat to his fortress in Metz and meekly approached the assembly, informing them that his troops would be withdrawn from the city. On July 16th, he went further by recalling Jacques Necker. The finance minister had been out of work for a mere five days. Davidson reveals that on July 17th, he emerged from the Hotel de Villa in Paris, wearing a rosette in the capricious colors of the capital and the revolutionaries. There was some polite applause from last week's rioters. It was as if the king were endorsing the principle of a more democratic form of local government in Paris. The king didn't realize it yet, but his attempts to appease his opponents would further contribute to his downfall. It is an unfortunate fact, but history is filled with pages of dictators who gave in to the crowd assembled against them. The Arab Spring swept through northern Africa and the Middle East in late 2010. It offers a blueprint of options for absolute rulers faced with an unruly populace. Ben Ali of Tunisia fled his nation. He was tried in absentia and died of cancer exiled from his homeland. Egypt's Hosni Mubarak resigned to public pressure when the military signaled that it would take no part in defending his regime. He was initially sentenced to life imprisonment before being acquitted on a technicality seven years later. 
Syria's dictator Bashir al-Assad fought his detractors with everything he had, even stooping so low as ordering attack helicopters to open fire on a public funeral. Today, in 2023, he continues to preside over an oppressive regime whose sole purpose is to enrich him. Of course, fighting back doesn't always guarantee success. After all, Libya's dictator Muammar Gaddafi went on the offensive. But thanks to intervention by NATO, he was captured and brutally murdered by the Libyans who had captured him. King Louis's decision to attempt peace with the would-be revolutionaries that had just assaulted his Bastille ensured his downfall. He may not have seen it coming, but the 150,000 people who suddenly emigrated out of Paris, nearly 1% of the city's entire population, knew that they were witnessing the birth of something new, something that would replace the old. A quarter of those that left were members of the first estate, the clergy. It seemed as though even God was abandoning his divinely chosen king in the coming fight against the third estate. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.